He's here to fulfill it. And how radical of statements those were to people in that day. Because he immediately follows it right where we pick up at verse 21, where he says, And you have heard it said to those of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, so buckle up, because we're going to have to do a little bit of history and nerdage to really understand what in the world Jesus is saying right there. Because this, this is deep for one little sentence into his sermon. Right? Whenever he says that phrase, you have heard it said to those of old, some of your passages might say to the ancients or something along those lines. Jesus is talking about the law, because you all know that passage, thou shalt not murder. You get that. But what's this extra bit here that he's talking about? You have heard it said to the ancients that if you murder, you will be taken before the Sanhedrin for judgment. What is that? And that's that stuff David was kind of touching upon last week of these extra traditions that were added on top of the Levitical law. All right, so to, to really get that, and I promise what I'm getting ready to do is going to be relevant later. So you're going to wonder where the heck I'm going with this. I promise. It's all connected. All right, so to really get this, you're going to have to understand the kind of stuff that Israel went through. I'm not a cartographer. Don't judge me for my weird picture of Israel. It kind of, I'm going to try my best here. Okay, so it's kind of a weird shaped thing, kind of like this, almost like a big geological piece of bacon, but I, I don't know. Is it inappropriate to say the Jewish state looks like bacon? Okay. okay. But so you got like the ocean over here, and then like right here, you got the, the Sea of Galilee, and then down here, you got the Dead Sea. All right, so this is kind of what Israel looks like. It's a bit more blobby back in the day than this, but you, you, you get the gist, okay? And at some point in Israel's history, Solomon dies, kind of in the 900s-ish B.C., and there's a civil war. His sons start fighting for the throne, and all of a sudden, these, these top two-thirds of the land and the top two-thirds of the people, so ten of the tribes go this way, and they kind of roughly split the land up like this, and this is Israel, and down here is Judah, right? And they kind, kind of exist like this for a while, and then somewhere over in here, because I don't have a big enough whiteboard and we don't got the time for all that, uh, is Assyria. And they come in and they conquer this in 700-ish, and about 150 years later, from way, way, way over here, Babylon comes in and conquers this in the 500s. And so Israel is just scattered for a long time. Now, there are always some, some of God's chosen people in this region, uh, but by and large, a lot of them are scattered. Then all of a sudden, Alexander the Great comes in, and he then says, okay, this is all mine. And then Rome comes in, and they're like, okay, this is all ours too. And then eventually, uh, somewhere off in this exile, though, in that time, down in these regions and from the exile of people from this region, they start coming because they don't have the temple anymore to sacrifice. They say, how do, we, how do we interact with God if we don't have the temple? We can't follow the law. So then they start just reading the Torah and all of the Old Testament prophets and examining it. And they become what, what people call a people of the book. That's how Jewish people identify because they are now understanding what it means to be obedient to the law and not rely upon the sacrificial system. But during this time, they came up with these 
traditions of the Father. So whenever you hear Jesus accusing the Pharisees and the Sadducees in any of the Gospels about the traditions, it's those. And sometimes those extra traditions are just tedious and they're just ridiculous, right? You, so for example, you are not allowed to work on the Sabbath. It's a rest day. It is holy. So what do these extra traditions on top of those laws add? Well, you can't take more than X amount of steps on the Sabbath if you want to be holy. If your livestock falls into a pit, which, I mean, for ancient people, that's like, that's like the equivalent of like you running your Lambo into the ditch, right? If you want to be right before God that day, you can't get your animal out of the hole. You either got to let it die or you get to hang out there until sunset and then you can move your animal. Things like that. Just all these little tiny tedious extra laws that nobody's got the time of day to do except for the religious elite because it's literally their job to follow all these 101 tedious little things. Right? They added all those on top of 613 laws that were already there. So yeah, Jesus is talking about the law, but whenever he's saying, you have heard it said, he's not editing or changing or messing with the law. What he's getting ready to talk about is the extra societal traditions that they are used to hearing. Because people in this day, they don't have access to the Bible. They don't get to read the Ten Commandments on their own. Everything they know comes from the religious elite that make all of these extra tedious rules. And then, right, so... After all this happens, and Rome comes through and, uh, you know, says all of this stuff is ours now, and all this is all done. I had a, I had a napkin for this, and it's gone. So I'm going to have smudgy fingers. You're welcome. Um, this bit up here, this... For future reference. Oh, I thank you. This becomes Galilee, and I, it I may or may not have spelled Galilee right, but that's fine. This right here becomes Samaria, and then this right here becomes Judea. And whenever Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he's right here, because he was born somewhere here-ish. So this is where Jesus is preaching right now. And he's talking about all of those extra traditions, not the actual law, you shall not murder, but the tradition of if you murder somebody, if you take their life, you are going to be brought up before the judges. But he says, but I say unto you. So in that, in these two like sentence and a half, not only is he saying, I'm getting ready to challenge everything that you and your society think you understand about the law of God, and I'm getting ready to tell you how you're supposed to read it. All of this immediately after he said, you have to be holier than the holy men in society, and I'm going to fulfill the law. Guess what? You don't even know what you're talking about when you talk about the law. I'm getting ready to exp sorry, explain it to you. So these people are primed and ready just to hear something utterly ridiculous at this point. So he goes on to tell them, But I say unto you that every one of you who is angry with his brother, you will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Right? So whenever Jesus says this thing that if you are angry, you are already guilty of murder. Okay, This isn't just a Jesus giving a little hyperbolic statement of, oh, well, you're, you're angry. You might as well kill somebody, right? 
because it's not just Jesus trying to find a playful way of saying, God's standards are up here. So if you're angry, then all of a sudden you've already violated it. Jesus is full on equating your anger, my anger, to murder. And I'm certain every one of you and all the people that were sitting in the crowd that day are wondering, uh, okay, well, these two things don't seem equivalent. I said, Jesus, we went zero to 60 real quick here. What do we do here? Okay, and understand why he's saying this. We have to understand what exactly is murder to an Old Testament Jew, right? Or even to a second temple Jew like this. What are they, talk, what are they talking about when they talk about murder? Wait, well, what is murder? I didn't know that was rhetorical. What is murder? <laughs> Taking somebody's life. Okay. So there's one definition. But there's, there's a word for that in the Old Testament. I'm usually a language nerd. I don't have that one memorized. So you all get a pass on that one for right now. Um, but there's a, there's a word for taking somebody's life. And then there's a word for murder. Because in the Old Testament, because some of your translations, they might say in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. That's not entirely right. That word there literally means murder. Because God literally commands people to wage warfare later. So he's not going to give them contradictory commands. They're two different words. So what is murder? Okay, in Genesis, God lays down what in his mind murder is. In Genesis chapter 9, he says that anybody who murders... So essentially, the best way I can think of to describe it is a flagrant just... It's, it's not just taking somebody's life. Because if somebody, if somebody comes at me with a butcher knife and I unfortunately end up taking their life in the process, I haven't murdered them. At least not by this perspective. But if I walk up behind somebody and I just say, I don't like you that day, and I just take a rock and, right, you know, that's murder. And the best way I can think of it, to put it in English language, is the flagrant disregard for somebody else's dignity. And God defines it in Genesis chapter 9 as anybody who sheds blood is assaulting my image. And for Jews, assaulting either God's name or his image is a direct assault upon God himself because those things are direct reflections of his character. So it's not just the action of taking somebody's life. It's the action of just flagrantly not caring about the fact that they are another human being created in God's image and that he put that there for a reason and for a purpose and they are meant to be a reflection of his character. So Jesus is saying here, you might not be sneaking up behind somebody or to their face, I, I don't know, trying to give them the Michael Myers treatment, but what you're still doing is completely and totally disregarding the fact that this is another human being that God stuck his image in. Right? Because the apostles even go on this line of thought. James says that man's anger leads to unrighteousness. And so whenever you're angry with somebody, Jesus here, he's saying, you are not just kind of being angry with somebody, but you can get let off the hook because you have, haven't actually taken a swing at them. But he's saying your anger, my anger, the anger of the crowd that day, that is assaulting God's image because our anger is not God's anger. It's not. 
And yet all at the same time, immediately inside of all of us, we go, well, hold on here. What am I supposed to do about that? Because we get angry from time to time. So don't hear what I'm not saying. There are times where anger is good and appropriate. Right? God gets angry. Jesus got angry. Everybody wants to paint Jesus as like some hippy-dippy love dude all the time. The man literally made a, just fashion together a whip on the spot and started cracking people in the temple and flipping their tables. He got angry from time to time. There's a time and a place for anger. There's good reasons to be angry. Like whenever you get the phone call from school that some kid clocked your kid in the face, you have a good reason to be angry. You have a good reason to be angrier if you're the other parent and you found out your kid clocked another kid in the face. You naturally get angry at the horrible things that we hear on the news. We get angry whenever other cultures or even our own in the distant past has decided to genocide people. We get angry whenever we hear news about just over in Colombia, there was a giant sex trafficking trade that they just busted. There's a time and a place for anger. What Jesus is talking here, he is talking about your raw, unsanctified anger taking the driver's seat in your life. All right? And because before we move on, I'm going to kind of paraphrase uh, and. Uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll here, whenever he said this, he said, Scripture does not show us negative emotion. It shows us unsanctified emotion. Right? And understand that whenever, whenever Jesus is giving these qualifications here, he's not, he's finding every way possible to understand that you don't get to be off the hook for this. Right, so whenever he says, if you insult your brother, so whenever Keith read his translation, it said raka. Right? I, I'm, I'm sorry if you're not a language person, you're about ready to check out. Don't, I promise, it's worth it. Raka is like the equivalent to just calling somebody stupid. It's a generic insult. But then he goes on, but if, he, but if you tell somebody, you fool, you're not liable to the council at that point. You're now liable to hell at that point. Why? Because it's a slightly different word. Stupid and fool sound the same to us. For these people, that's more. That's now you're, you're assaulting somebody's character at that point. It's a step beyond. You're not just saying, eh, you, okay, you're kind of dumb. It's, it's like you're calling them a loser. The best thing I can equate it to in our culture, it's, uh, it's the difference between kind of calling somebody a stick in the mud or a fuddy-duddy or they're not in touch with the times and then calling them a bigot. It's that big of a difference for them. So Jesus is saying, you don't get to just casually insult your brother. And you especially don't get to then insult their character. Because when you do, this is murder. It's that bad. Your culture might tell you it's okay to be angry whenever you feel justified about it, just so long as you don't take a swing at them. That's totally fine. Jesus is saying, that's not the culture I'm trying to create. And it is murder. And so whenever we go on to read, it says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar there, remember, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar. First, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Right? And so for these people back in the day, offering their gift at the altar, that's their form of worship. That is their act of worship. For them... That's 
singing contemporary songs and listening to somebody preach. For them, this is church. This is how they interact with God. And Jesus is telling them, if you have some sort of anger in you, or if you know that somebody else has an anger towards you, don't come up and worship. Because something is wrong here. Paul says something very similar in Corinthians, so this might connect with us a little bit more as 21st century Americans. He starts talking about the Lord's Supper, and he starts talking to them about taking it inappropriately. And a lot of us like to think, oh, well, we, we examine our own, our own sins just to make sure we, we feel good before we take the supper. That's not what Paul's talking about. You're never going to feel good enough about your sin to take the supper. None of us are. That's the point of the supper. Right? What he's talking about is disregarding the other people around you in your community because some people were getting fat and happy and getting drunk off of that wine while other people didn't even get a chance to partake in the supper. They were disregarding other people and being disrespectful toward them in the body. Right? I had a professor at HLG, whenever he pastored, he took what Paul's words there so seriously because Paul literally says some people took the supper inappropriately, they got sick, and some of them have died from it. He took that passage so seriously, he couldn't do it with everybody in the congregation, obviously. But whenever pastors, they typically offer the elements to the deacons. So before every single one of the deacons would take the elements, he would look them square in the eye, and he would say, we're good, right? And had there ever been an occasion for, one, for either him or them to say no, they would have abstained. Because Jesus isn't interested in our worship whenever there's division going on in the body. And if we keep reading, he gives more practical examples of saying if, if there's somebody around you that has something against you, in the culture and out and about because it's not just the people in this room and it's not just the people at the church down the street. You don't get to just play nice with other people if they call themselves Christian or if they're a slightly different flavor of Christian than you or whatever else. Now he starts giving a practical example. If somebody in the community has something against you, go and be reconciled to that person too because also Paul writes later on in the New Testament that you should live at peace with the people around you, not just your brothers and sisters in Christ, but everybody around you. Why, why are the apostles and Jesus so fixated on us understanding that there's something inappropriate about curmudgeony, angry, bitter Christians? Because Jesus is creating an entirely new culture. You can walk out the door any day and find bitter angry, curmudgeony people. It's all over the news. Our culture tries, literally right now, it's all the time. People are actually actively trying to make all of us angry. All the time. And everybody always wants to present their particular flavor of anger as the right, righteous, good anger that if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong and you're the problem. And we put it into our pop culture. We were literally watching just some brand new thing that popped up on a streaming service the other day, and this was a very popular title, so clearly a lot of people were going to watch it. And one of the characters, I'm going to be kind of paraphrasing, but more or less said something along the lines of, well, if you're not angry, then you're not looking around. And a lot of people probably feel that way now. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. Because later on, in Second Corinthians... Let me blow this up a little bit because I have it on a tiny screen here. Paul writes this. 
And I'm certain you all are familiar with the front half of this passage because you hear it all the time. But I'm going to read this thing the whole way down. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I don't expect you to memorize that whole passage, obviously. But if you take nothing, if you've been checked out this whole morning because I drew maps and I'm talking about Hebrew and Greek and you're not interested and I don't talk fast like David or make nearly as funny of jokes, uh, listen to this one sentence. You were reconciled so that you might reconcile. This is the culture that Jesus is interested in creating. Not a culture that, and hear, hear this, even if you've got a good reason to be angry, he's not interested in a culture that's hanging on to their anger. There is a time and a place to be angry. Jesus right here in this passage and all of the apostles later on affirm, you don't have the right to hang on to that anger and be defined by it. Because you're supposed to be defined by the Spirit. My anger, your anger, our unsanctified raw emotion it's like a, it's like a nerve or like a like a bad tooth right at some point there was a purpose to it and now it's defining who we are and that's not what jesus is interested in right and to a certain degree because we can always think about oh yes we should have proper relationships with with the people around us you know and the people in my life the people i know it, it extends out further than that because i told you this was going to come back to play Here's where it comes back in. You don't even get to be angry and bitter about stuff, even with good reason, that extends out beyond you, okay? Because Jesus, he's preaching this here to a people who are very, very familiar with their own history. They have been constantly oppressed by outside cultures, and they are waiting with bated breath for a king, warrior, messiah to come in and reconquer all of this as a form of angry justice because they are angry people, understandably. And they're not just angry with the outsiders, they're angry with people inside of themselves, right? So this whole, this whole region right here, Samaria, most of us just think of it as a town because it was a town, it was a city. It used to be the capital of that portion of Israel that broke off. That was their capital, right? And they created a false temple there, and they gave bad sacrifices to false gods on that temple. And so whenever this place got reallocated to the Jews, now there's this whole big section here in the middle, right? We have Jews trying to be faithful here. We got Jews trying to be faithful here. These Jews have to come down here in order to get to the temple to sacrifice, to participate in worship of God. And what they have to do is, is if they want to get there in a timely manner, walk straight through Samaria. This is a problem for them. Because for them, it wasn't just, you know, we hear that the Jews had problems with Samaritans. We try to equate it to our own culture, obviously. This wasn't like American racial issues. This wasn't just, we don't like you because we don't like you and we feel like exploiting you. This was, they were angry with the Samaritans because these people literally split God's nation in half. Because 
one guy wanted to be king whenever he didn't have the claim to the throne. Then they started practicing worship to false gods, and they brought God's judgment on everybody. These people tore the nation in half. They took the kingdom away from us. They then went out and had kids with other people, and they violated God's law. So they are not just traitors politically, they're race traitors, because now they're blending in with all the other people groups God told us to stay away from. If the Jews had a justifiable anger, it was against these people right here. Jesus immediately goes from preaching this sermon and Jews in this day would walk clean around this province. They're not walking around just the town of Samaria. They're walking around this province to get down to here because they hate these people so much and for a pretty good reason. He walks, he marches his disciples after preaching this about anger straight down, has an encounter with a woman at a well. The people in Samaria un begin to understand that the Messiah is here. Jesus preaches to them, and then he comes down here and gives a great commission where he tells them, you have to now go, not just here in Judea, you now have to go back up to Samaria and keep preaching to these people and be reconciled to these people right here. You don't have an excuse to be angry with anybody, even if you've got a really, really good reason. You don't get to be defined by this. Because... You are a people that has been reconciled so that you might reconcile no matter how grave the sin because that is the reflection of Jesus. Amen. Right? So if you're wondering, what, what, do I, what do I do with this? Because I feel angry from time to time. I get angry whenever I turn on the news and I feel like people are assaulting me or they're telling me that I'm assaulting them whenever I didn't even think about them until I turned on the news. I don't know what to do because I, I have friends or family who hurt me because they weren't there whenever they should have been there or they did something horrible and awful to me and they never should have done that. Even though they were present, they, they took advantage of me. They abused me. They did horrible things. If you've got, I don't know, if you've got an ex-spouse, an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend and things went horribly, horribly wrong and you are justifiably angry, if you've got problems with somebody in this room or somebody else out in the community, you've got to get it taken care of. Because Jesus makes it very clear, this, if left unchecked, will kill a church and its ministry. Right? And so if, if anybody, if you've got a, a brother or sister in this room or if David's been bothering you because he feels like there's something left unchecked in your life, it's not because they want to pester you or get up in your business. It's because this is a body that needs each other and it will kill the body if we don't do something about it. Because we're meant to be a people of reconciliation. And I'm not here to tell you that's easy. It's hard. It's really, really hard. Especially if you're not just angry with, with Becky at work because she constantly does little tiny things to irk you all the time and that irritation has now turned into bitterness and anger. Like, or if it was you have some horrible trauma in your past, right? I, 
I can't even begin to tell you where to start with that. I'm not qualified. It might very well be that you come here and you try it and we try our best to help you. We pray over you. We love on you. And if it's still not working, you might very, I will, I'll volunteer David for it at some point. I'm sure he'll watch this. I'll look into the camera. Uh, David, you're getting volunteered for this. And I'll, I'll even do it too. If, if, if the body, if you need more help than what this body can give you, one of us will help get you connected with a counselor, a good one, if that's what it takes to get this anger and whatever it is in your life that's making you bitter, dealt with. Because you, we have to let it go. And that's not easy. It's not. Because people do hurt us and we hurt each other. We have issues with other people. They have issues with us. But we have to move on because this is the culture that Christ is creating as one of reconciliation. And I don't have all the answers where to begin with that, but I know that Jesus, whenever his disciples began to ask questions about how we do this kind of thing, because this is hard, he told them, one of the first things he told them was to pray for your enemy. Sincerely. Don't do it self-righteously, trying to get attention, but, but pray for your enemy, for their well-being. Because... I mean, I don't know if this was his reasoning, but it might very well be, because um, I know David quotes this from time to time, and it's just a good one. I don't know who said it. I think maybe Matt Chandler. I could be wrong. Um, it's really hard to continually be bitter toward or hate somebody that you are sincerely praying for. That's the people in this room. That's the people in our neighborhood who are doing annoying, irksome, really hateful things to us, and it's the broader bit of our culture. On every level, Jesus wants you to be a people of reconciliation. And so, uh, this morning, because the band can go on ahead and come on up, um, whenever we try to wrestle with this, whenever we try to deal with it, what, whenever we're trying to respond because it's not always easy to identify whenever some part of us uh, has let uh, a bit of bitterness uh, turn into an inappropriate anger where we are now flagrantly disregarding God's image in somebody else. Um, just just come, come before God and just be receptive to whatever it is he might say to you or impress upon you. I, I don't know what everybody's got going on. I don't, I don't know if you've got family issues or struggles or if you've got issues with somebody else in this room uh, or somebody out in the community, whatever it is. I, I know David comments on it from time to time. Maybe you're tired of hearing it, but it might very well be the truth. Maybe your bitterness at the culture for good reason because you might very well be right at why you're bitter at the culture and you're taking pot shots at other people online all the time or in your private conversations talking about how horrible and awful other people are. Maybe that's maybe it's turned into bitterness in your life. Whatever it is, be receptive to it and understand that your anger, my anger, your spirit, my spirit, they're not God's. And to let go of our bitternesses and that anger and become a people of reconciliation. Because you were reconciled so that you might reconcile. So do whatever business you need to with God this morning.
we uh, bring the service to a close, just like I said, if you can't remember, because I doubt you're going to remember every nitpicky, nerdy little detail that I throw at you, and it's fine if you don't remember my, my wonderful map. Uh, if you take nothing else with you this morning, just take that one phrase with you, that you have been reconciled so that you can reconcile. Because that's the culture that Jesus is interested in. That's the point of the entire Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is taking a people who think they know God, who think they know him, and telling them, this is the culture that I'm creating, one of a kingdom, and one that will reconcile with everybody, even Samaria. So I want to pray this thing out this morning. Father God, thank you this morning for the ability to come together and worship and observe your word. And I pray that your spirit would just uh, over abundantly fill everybody this week uh, that we can, as a whole, um, examine ourselves uh, to help get rid of any bitterness or anger that we can communicate with one another openly and be a body that you want us to be, that our worship could be pleasing to you and that we could be a part of that message and that ministry of reconciliation. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.